0: Hey, Magnum subs, this is another installment of Sex and Politics, my occasional longer extended conversations with people I find interesting. And we always, because it's Savage Love, we still throw a sex question at them at the end. And I wanted to let you all know that this conversation with Dr. Stacey Dillon about the state of abortion services, abortion rights in this country, we recorded it about a week before the leak of Samuel Lido's draft of the Supreme Court's decision, the coming decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, something that both Stacey and I predicted in our conversation was imminent. So you'll note when we're talking about abortion rights in this extended s p conversation, we're not talking about the leak. And that's because when Stacey and I talked, the leak hadn't happened yet. Here we go. In the fall of last year, Texas banned abortion at six weeks, which is before most women, even though they're pregnant, And the Supreme Court, with its new conservative majority, supermajority, didn't block this unconstitutional new law from going into effect while challenges were making their way through lower courts, which effectively outlawed abortion in Texas. Women began pouring into Oklahoma, so Oklahoma, in April of this year, passed a law banning abortion there, making it a felony to perform an abortion in Oklahoma, punishable by 10 years in prison. Laws modeled on the Texas law, which makes fugitives out of anyone who helps women woman get an abortion, are being rushed through red state legislatures all over the country. I want to talk about what is going on out there right now, not just with abortion rights, but with actual abortion services on the ground. And joining me to talk about this, Dr. Stacy Dillon, who, in addition to being a past guest here on the Savage Lovecast, is a board-certified physician and an associate medical director at Planned Parenthood Dr. Dillon shares evidence-based medicine and combats misinformation on our Instagram, which is at Stacey DeLynn underscore MD. Hey, Dr. Dillon, may I call you Stacey?
1: Yes, of course.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We've gotten to be friendly. I just didn't want to like seem uh, to my listeners like I was just calling you Stacey uh, without um, being uh, on first name terms, which I think we are now.
1: I, I like to make information accessible. So as casual as possible
0: is better. <laughs> so you're a provider,
1: I am. I've been an abortion provider for about 10 years now.
0: And how have things changed in the last year?
1: It's been, you know, really, really dramatic. I think that I, um, I, you know, I I work in two states. I work in New York and Florida. And watching the landscape change in Florida has been just really, really devastating over the last year. I think it started with when the ban was passed in Texas, which I, I just thought wouldn't happen. And I was so shocked to see it happen. I immediately began seeing patients come from Texas. So um, Texas patients began pouring into Oklahoma, um, Planned Parenthood Health Centers there saw a 2,500% increase in patients coming from Texas, and I began to treat them in Florida, Um, And then Florida began a 24-hour waiting period, which meant a completely unnecessary visit in which uh, we give patients 24 hours to think about their procedure as if patients uh, haven't already thought about the fact that they want an abortion.
0: Abortion is not an impulse purchase. Why? What's the rationalization for the imposition of this 24-hour waiting period other than just fucking with women?
1: Yeah, there absolutely is none. You know, every single patient who comes into our centers um, has thought very carefully about their decision. And if patients are ambivalent, you know, we're able to have those conversations with them. And so to say that um, politicians are going to force women uh, to have an extra day to think about it is absolutely ludicrous. And so let's be frank about what it is. It means that women who can't afford to take another day off of work, who can't find extra childcare, who can't travel the distances to get an abortion, absolutely can't take that second day off of work. It's about taking um, away the decision to have an abortion from people who already have existing hurdles to accessing care. And
0: A lot of women were showing up for services unaware that this new requirement was in place.
1: It's been really devastating as a provider to not be able to do my job. I've had, you know, uh, patients coming to me in the last couple weeks crying their eyes out and asking, you know, this was the day that they could get off work. Why can't I just help them today? And I just say that I'm so sorry. I wish that I could, but unfortunately you know, there are politicians who have determined that you can't, uh, access care today. And it's been really, really hard. And so now we've had so many patients coming from Texas, um, but Texas patients aren't going to be able to access care in places like Oklahoma, uh, where there's been this total abortion ban signed into law or, um, to take an extra day to travel to places like Florida. So truly there's just patients traveling around the country, trying to figure out where they can access abortion. And, um, you know, it's it's getting worse and worse every day. It's the 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 landscape is changing every single day, um, and you know, I think that for women who may think that they're in a state where abortion access is protected, you know, this summer we're looking at the um, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization Supreme Court decision, and in that case, there are twenty six states that could quickly move to ban abortion altogether. Half of those states, 13 states have these trigger laws that mean that uh, abortion would immediately be, be outlawed. And that's going to affect 36 million women. So that's half of all women of reproductive age in the country um, who will no longer be able to access abortion. It's just it's just really devastating to think about.
0: One of the disturbing new fronts that the anti-choice movement has opened up is not just saying, okay, you can't have abortions in Texas. illegal in this state. But, you know, if you're going to go to New York and get an abortion, whatever, what can we do about it? They're now writing laws that would punish abortion providers in other states, in blue states, for providing this kind of care, providing abortion services to a woman who resides in a red state.
1: Yeah, it's terrifying to think about. I I, I am trying to find some hope in the fact that, you know, they are. Have been a number of bills that have been passed um, this year that have looked to expand access to sexual and reproductive health care um, and protect the right to abortion. There and those keep me hopeful, but but I will agree it's dizzying the amount of these bans that are quickly being
0: passed. Because what they're doing in Texas is, in Texas they've made it a crime or a liability, literally financial liability potentially, to help someone Mm -hmm. get an abortion, to drive your daughter to a state or give her the money she might need to fly to a state to get an abortion. If a nosy neighbor Mm -hmm. or somebody at church finds out that you did that, they can sue you. The enforcement is now in the hands of basically vigilante anti-choice citizens and what anti-choice activists are now doing is wanting to expand that kind of vigilantism to going after doctors who helped somebody from a red state get an abortion, to going after the receptionist at the clinic who did the intake for the person who came from Oklahoma to get the abortion. It's It makes my head explode to think about the kinds of hoops people are going to have to jump through or the kind of subterfuge they're going to have to engage in to get an abortion. And not everybody, just as not everybody has the time to take two days off to go get an abortion, not everybody has the ability to engage in this kind of cloak and dagger spy versus spy shit to go get an abortion.
1: Yeah, the one that really I found, you know, Idaho did a similar copycat ban, and it said that any family member of anyone who, you know, was a partner to the person who was having an abortion could sue the family member. And the really Devastating part of the um, hearings that I remember seeing was they were saying yes, the family of someone who had raped the victim could go on to see that um, that patient who's having an abortion. I just it, it's it's really it's really devastating. And you know, like you said, these barriers to accessing abortion have always existed. You know, like I mentioned, things like finding childcare, taking time off work, navigating the costs. But um, you know, we know that these bans are going to continue to disproportionately. Um, impact people who have lower incomes, who live in rural areas, who lack access to health care for things like, you know, systemic racism, discrimination, um, people from black, Latino, indigenous communities. So the people who don't have access to these sorts of resources and support that they need to travel out of the state, they're going to just simply be forced to carry pregnancies against their will, or they're going to seek abortion outside of the health care system.
0: One of the ways to seek abortion inside the healthcare system, at least right now, is medication abortion. There are two pills a woman can self-administer. These pills safely. They both begin with the letter M, and I can never remember their names, and I'm sure I'd mispronounce them if I tried. Would you please let us know what those <laughs> medications are?
1: Sure. So um, for medication abortion, the, the two medications are mifepristone and misoprostol. I think we call them, you know, affectionately, Mifi and Miso. And so, you know, it's a two-part um, process. So. Um, patients who come into our clinics take uh, a pill in the clinic uh, or and have it sent to them, depending on the state, uh, called mifepristone. And that's a uh, progestin blocker. It basically stops the pregnancy from growing. And then misoprostol is the medication that um, expels the pregnancy um, from the uterus. And so uh, it's a two-part process. A
0: two-part process that effectively induces a miscarriage. Correct. Absolutely. And there's no way for a medical professional to tell the difference between a miscarriage that happened of its own accord and a miscarriage that was the result of medication abortion.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, we certainly do uh, want patients to know that uh, because we did see, um, you know, a horrifying outcome in, uh, in Texas, where there was um, uh, a 26 year old woman there who was charged with murder after authorities say she performed an illegal abortion for taking the, uh the abortion pills and so those charges were dropped but i think it's just the tip of the iceberg and so you know um it's great that patients have uh, access and some people may choose to self manage um but i think you know as a healthcare provider i want all patients who seek abortion to be able to have access to to safe and legal uh, abortion and we want to get rid of the barriers that exist that keep um, patients from being able to come into a clinic to see a doctor if they choose to, to have access to
0: health care. A little bit more about the the woman in Texas. One of the things that was so horrifying about that story was her health care providers mm-hmm. called the sheriff. She told yeah. her health care providers in the hospital where she went because uh, unlike the vast majority of people who take these pills, she had complications and needed to see mm-hmm. a doctor. And they called the police on her. They called the cops. They called the sheriff. And the sheriff arrested her because he felt like it. There was actually no law that she had violated. None of Texas's draconian laws that have been passed so far bring charges against the woman who sought the abortion or, in her case, self-administered it. So what we have here are, to add to your list of worries if you're a woman who needs an abortion and might be thinking about self-administering, is being— having the cops called on you by an anti-choice religious fundamentalist nurse in a hospital where you went for care. And the lesson that we're all supposed to be emphasizing right now about this woman in Texas is she told them that she self-administered an abortion because she wanted Mm -hmm. to give the people attending to her all the information they might need to take care of her. She did not need to give them that information to get the care that she needed. And women need to know that going forward. If you take these pills and there are complications which happens rarely, but they do, don't tell your healthcare providers that you took these pills. Tell them you're having a miscarriage.
1: Yeah, and um, the Oklahoma governor, uh, Governor Stitt, who signed that really horrifying abortion ban into law this last week, he was, like, joking on TV about sending highway patrol after Texas patients who who were trying to come to Oklahoma to access abortion care. It's just, it's so cruel. It's so callous. I, I think of this woman in this in this terrified position having gone through this. Um, you know, I think that I I feel really overwhelmed. And I for me, you know, I'm a I'm a doctor. My job is to provide care to patients, but I've had to learn so much about the the legal system and, and what's been going on. And I think that like I think that this has just been, you know, this has been years in the making. Like over the past decade, there these politicians have they've been steadily pushing harsher restrictions. They they defunded essential community health centers programs. They've stacked the federal courts to ensure that these like harmful policies continue to stay in place. And now we're looking at the the end of Roe. But I think the point is that like Roe is the floor. It's not the ceiling. It's the legal right to abortion. It's just the tip of the iceberg. It's it shows like it's never been enough on its own to guarantee access for millions of people across the country. So, um, you know, there have been nearly 600 abortion restrictions introduced nationwide and 100 enacted into law. And so I I truly feel for patients who are just scrambling to figure all this out on their own. And it's been really, really difficult for me as a provider to uh, know what the medicine is, know how to safely care for my patients, and essentially have a politician in the exam room with me telling me how to dictate care for these patients, often in ways that that can be harmful both emotionally and physically. Um, It's been a really difficult
0: time. Uh, Well, uh, first I want to thank you for providing the care that you do to your patients at this difficult time. And uh, things are so dire. Then I want to point out things are this dire before Roe has been scrapped, overturned, which is – Clearly right. about to happen. They basically, when the Supreme Court refused to issue an injunction against Texas's new six-week ban, basically scrapped Roe already because they're no longer enforcing it. Right. Um, it's a mm-hmm. obviously un- it, it contradicts Roe. It contradicts Casey. It is unconstitutional on its face, and the Supreme Court let it go into effect. So Roe is like technically still with us, but kind of dead already. And things are this yeah. dire. You know, one of the things that people are talking about to address the need for abortion care and as a workaround, you know, to the closing of clinics, are these medications. m mm-hmm. whose names I can't pronounce still, even after listening to you pronounce them <laughs> for me. Um, even if you gave them those nicknames, which I can't already, I already can't remember. You know, it, it, that has been talked up. I've talked it up as a kind of panacea. Terry and I got some. Mm-hmm. And they're in our house. Because we have... Mm-hmm nieces and nephews in red states. And we just want to be Mm -hmm. able to like pop them in a FedEx envelope or take them on a plane ourselves if we need to. And yet these are not the panacea that a lot of us on the left would like to believe they are. They're not the solution to the end of Roe.
1: Right. And I think that that what you're describing, it just shows that banning access to abortion doesn't end the need for abortion, that patients will find a way not to be pregnant if they don't want to be pregnant. And we want them to continue to have access to safe and legal abortions and to be able to access healthcare care providers when, when they need them. So, you know, it's, it's um, upsetting that that everyone is sort of thinking this way and having to learn all these all these lessons that they're really hard and really devastating.
0: Way. There's only one time in my life I managed to bring somebody around who was anti-choice to a pro-choice position, and I, I remember it really clearly. it was in a restaurant like 30 years ago as a waiter then, and we were having this argument, and <laughs> she was anti-choice for those sentimental reasons. I love babies that so many people are. Anti choice. Just like, you know, it reminds me of those sentimental reasons some people oppose same sex marriage because, like, every child deserves a mother and a father. Aren't mommies and daddies good? Shouldn't, you know, every kid have that? And it's like, okay, sure, that's a nice thing. Uh, You know, a married mom and a dad, I had one of those. I had a set of those. They were great. Um, And babies are (laughs) lovely, but that's not the argument we're having. And and I don't know why Democrats (laughs) don't frame it like this. It's not whether we're going to have abortions or not, it's what kind of abortions we're going to have. We're going to have absolutely. abortions. It's
1: whether we're going to have safe access to abortions, absolutely, or we're going
0: to have risky abortions that kill women and that infants don't survive either.
1: Yeah, and you know, I think that the patients who come to access abortion, they've thought really carefully about this decision and what it means for the um, the children that they have that they're trying to raise well day in and day out, patients tell me that they want to be able to provide, um, you know, a good life for their for their families and for their children. And that's why they come to this decision. So women have thought about this. And, um, you know, just creating a ban to the access is not going to be an, a solution to ending abortion. So
0: it's not going to end abortion, banning it. What do we do? Things are dire. And this is one of those issues that when we think about it, it almost instills such a degree of hopelessness that you can't read another story about it or think about it. It's like climate change. Like, all right, what can we do?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think, like I said earlier, I think that this is suddenly becoming, coming to everyone's attention. You know, patients who thought previously, sure, I'll be able to access an abortion if I need one are realizing that they might not be able to. And so, you know, I know at Planned Parenthood, what we're doing is like, we're, we're really trying to expand patient navigation resources, um, you know, telehealth and states where it's available is being enacted. And I think that the goal is just to work with with state coalition partners can, to continue to pass legislation that's going to protect the right to abortion. I, I agree. I felt very overwhelmed and very dire, but I do think that There have been states where we've seen really crucial victories this year. There have been states like New Jersey, Colorado, they've codified the protections of Roe into state law. You know, there's been increased funding for reproductive health care in states like uh, New Mexico, Oregon, California, Maryland have passed legislation to make abortion care more affordable. Um. There's also been an expansion of the types of healthcare professionals to qualify um, to to provide qualified abortions. So, as you talked about, the mifepristone and misoprostol. It's really just, um, you know, giving these pills and um, reading ultrasound can be done by advanced care practice practitioners, people like nurse practitioners, um, um physicians assistants. So. Um, you know those those are happening on those fronts. And I know that a number of states are um, where abortion access is being banned is are working to raise funds for things like abortion funds. So I really do um, recommend that people look up abortion funds within their state because those are funds that purely exist to for women who cannot afford to take two days off of work or to get childcare, help provide the funding, the transportation for women to travel to states where they can access um, safe abortion. So, those are some of the areas where I'm looking for hope. But, you know, I hope that during this time where uh, people are recognizing that they're losing access, it's really empowering people to, who might not have other care, who might not have cared so much about politics. You know, if if you recognize that the governor of your state would take away this right, hopefully voting that governor out.
0: Majorities of Americans, even in red states, support access to abortion care services, support abortion. Yeah. And yet, Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like people who support abortion want safe and legal abortion as badly as people who oppose it want unsafe and illegal Mm -hmm. abortion. Maybe this is going to wake people up. Maybe the first wave we're coming in should be soon coming into the first wave of forced births in States like Texas Mm -hmm. and soon in Oklahoma and soon in other red States is that going to sober people up as we as these states careen towards becoming 26 little Romanias?
1: Yeah, I think this is not a drill. Like abortion access is actively being dismantled. This idea that we thought was protected, uh, you know, isn't. And so, um, you know, unfortunately, I think that everyone's going to see the implications of that. I feel it day to day in the clinic. Um, It's really, really hard. And so I I do hope that this is a wake-up call for for most Americans who, like you said, overwhelmingly support abortion access.
0: Can we talk for just a quick second about Romania and Nicaragua? We have examples of nations that banned abortion in all cases, which is what Oklahoma just did. There's no exception for rape, for incest, life of the mother. That's what Romania had. That's what Nicaragua right Mm -hmm. now has. What do we see in countries that ban abortion?
1: Right. So I think the things that you see overwhelmingly are poor maternal and child outcomes. So, um, you know, when there are no exceptions for things like the health of the mother, you see women dying in pregnancy. And when you see, um, you know, forced pregnancies and children born without the sort of access to healthcare, food, shelter, all those sorts of things, you know, you see you see really poor child outcomes as well. So I think that I feel very clearly that, that being pro-choice means being pro-child, pro-family, pro-parent. Um, and so I think that when we think that taking abortion away will end abortion, we have multiple examples throughout history where it absolutely will not. So I think, you know, knowing that, having clear examples throughout history, it's why <laughs> we need to continue access to safe and legal abortions without question. It's not, it's not a question for anyone. We know what happens.
0: So... As a care provider, I'm sure you come in for a lot of grief, and if not grief directed at you, a lot of ambient grief directed at abortion service providers throughout the country. Mm -hmm. And what the last year has been like, this is just a really awkward, I'm a really awkward person, a really awkward way for me to ask you, what do you do to stay sane? What's your pressure release valve? What's your... I mean, you know, that term self-care. What's your self-care routine look like when you need to like not be thinking about this stuff for 10 minutes?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that just to, to stay within my my, you know, the area of my job, like I I feel so passionately about the work that I do. I think it's very rare in healthcare to have an example um, every single day, you know, day in and day out, where patients come in and thank me and say that I've changed their lives. It's so deeply rewarding. And so, without question, there are constant, you know, threats to my, my, you know, physical threats and um, harassment that I endure from antitrust protesters. And to read all of this is so demoralizing. But at the end of the day, when I go into work, you know, I, I feel incredibly. Honored and grateful to be able to provide the care that I do. And I know that I make a big difference to patients. And so, you know, every day I just feel more and more resolved to continue to provide care to patients no matter what. And I still deeply um, am grateful to be able to do this job.
0: That's such a great answer because I was looking for trash TV or cocktails or what it is you do. <laughs>
1: I've like gotten into 90 day fiance lately. I'm not proud of it, but sometimes I just
0: need to watch really trashy. TV well, no, no, I'm not I thought I thought that was a beautiful answer and I thought it was really wonderful that what you tap into to to buck you up and make you feel better is the work you do and how important it is and the lives that you uh, improve and the women that you touch and reach and help. Um that's that's wonderful. Although I was kind of fishing for ninety day fiance, I've gotten into that. <laughs> That too, but with the fast forward button, my thumb always on the fast forward button because they really pad that show. Um, Can we, (laughs) we sent you one question from a a, a listener because everybody who comes on the little sex and politics segment also has to answer a sex question with me. So you ready for that? Let's do it.
2: Hey Dan, Uh, that's a 28 year old Australian chick. Now I don't want kids. I like kids. I couldn't handle the responsibility every day. I've tried the pill and the marina and gave both a year or nine months each. And they both made me want to just drop a fucking toaster in the bath. I'm pretty sure I'm bipolar. There's a a pretty long genetic link in in my family with bipolar. Even though I'm super duper undiagnosed, hormonal treatments don't do me any favours. So here's the thing. Uh, My marina fell out of me two weeks ago and I'm not on any contraception. And my beautiful partner and I use condoms, but there have been occasions where the condoms buggered off somewhere else while we're having fun, and it's not discovered until it's too late. So I'll take a morning after pill, and I'm, I'm just mental again, crushing lows, panic attacks, extreme apathy, but I have to because I've terminated a pregnancy before, and it ruined me for a really long time. Naturally, it's, it's made my partner and I like, super cautious in our sex life, and it's exhausting. It's a real punch to the dick. My partner's younger than I am, we've only been dating a year and a half, and even though he's offered to discuss vasectomies with the doctor, there's a chance that it couldn't be reversed, and if he changes his mind and he wants kids later on, like, it's, it's too big of an ask. I've asked two doctors about getting my tubes tired. One laughed at me and said I'd change my mind, the other said no, because it could onset menopause, or give me osteoporosis, surgery's too risky for non-urgent medical reasons, etc., etc. Like, is this my answer? I know I'm not the first female without autonomy, but like I can't, I can't keep thinking about this. Do you have any advice for me? Do you know any professionals who can give me a path to follow?
0: Uh, it seems to me that maybe somebody hasn't told her about the possibility of a non-hormonal IUD.
1: Yeah. So first, I just wanted to touch on a couple of the methods that she referred to. So you know, I think initially when patients would come in asking about tubal ligation, they had decided they you know, want to be child-free going forward. Uh, IUDs are one of the first things that we talk about. Um, so there's a range of IUDs. She mentioned a, a hormonal IUD. There some, there's a range of hormones even within that category. So a small amount to, um, you know, a higher amount. And, you know, these are uh, intrauterine devices, which are put in very quickly and easily in a doctor's office that um, can last depending on the one that you get from uh, the hormonal ones last from three to seven years. And they have a localized effect on the, on the uterus. It's, it's different than taking a pill and swallowing it and it goes out to the body. So a lot of patients really, really love this option. And, you know, to know that it lasts for, it can last for up to seven years, often patients when they're coming in asking about this, this would mean just a few until the time of menopause. But there is also a copper, a non-hormonal IED, which might also be a great option for this patient. These last for 12 years. And, you know, we re- we refer to these types of long, what we call them LARCs, long-acting reversible contraception, as a fix it and forget it. So sometimes when patients first inquire to me about um, tubal ligation, um, I say, you know, have you heard about the IED? This is, a, this is a really long-acting option that can avoid that need for surgery. And then, the you know, the other question I ask is if they have a, you know, if they have a patient who has a penis and uh, they really do want to talk about sterilization, we do often talk about vasectomy, which is a really great option for permanent sterilization. Um, as she did mention, uh, it's not an option for people who um, are not sure that they want to be sterilized. Vasectomy reversals are technically possible, but not always guaranteed. So um, if we do want the difference between the two procedures is very dramatic. So for a tubal ligation is a surgery in a hospital requiring general anesthesia and um you know, an incision into the abdomen, whereas a vasectomy is a very simple office-based procedure. is has minimal complications, minimal risk. So, um, you know, I do talk about that with my patients. Um, that being said, go ahead.
0: Oh, I was just going to say, how often does it occur that uh, an IUD falls out? She mentioned her IUD fell out. i have never heard anyone say that their IUD fell out before.
1: Yeah. So, so while we say that expulsion is a risk of IUD, it's incredibly rare. Uh, significantly less than one percent. So, you know, I I do, while while we run through the risks and benefits of IEDs, I would say that um, you know, as someone who has put in probably tens of thousands of IUDs, that risk is incredibly rare. But I do also want to just honor that if the patient has decided that, that none of these are the, the road for her, that it is a problem for patients who are desiring sterilization, that the healthcare system and indiv- individual jo- doctors can be very, very judgmental about this. And, you know, I often see patients who have come to me who have said that they've been turned away for sterilization because a doctor has told them they haven't had enough kids or um, also the information that she said about a tubal ligation causing early menopause is absolutely false. Um, a tubal ligation is a removable part of the fallopian tube, which in no way affects the ovaries or the uterus. It does not cause early menopause. So, so I'm sad about the amount of misinformation that she and, and the challenges that she has Encountered in trying to seek sterilization, so um, I do like to talk to my patients about all these various options that are out there, but make sure that they also have access to sterilization if they want it. Similar to this conversation that we've had about abortion, I, I believe I believe my patients when they say they've made up their minds for what works best for them and their families. And I, you know, as as healthcare providers, our job is to honor the decisions that our patients
0: make. It's you know I hate to drag in uh, a hot button issue. It does seem <laughs> that. It, the medical establishment turning women away who want tubal ligations because they are sure they don't want children turning them away, telling them they may not, they may regret that decision later. And so we're not going to perform this procedure is kind of in conflict with the affirmative model we have for trans patients, because a lot of Absolutely. gender confirmation surgeries and interventions result in sterilization and the medical establishment um you know, gender identity clinics will do this with teenagers who wish to yeah. transition, even if the end result is potential sterilization. And I support that. I believe in services and healthcare for trans people. And yet that same medical establishment, or maybe not the exact same doctors, I assume a doctor who would say this to a woman who wanted a tubal ligation, isn't a doctor performing gender confirmation surgeries, but the exact same sort of like er medical edifice establishment that is providing this kind of care for trans patients, despite sterilization often being an outcome, not inevitably, not always, but often is then turning away adult women like the caller, I think is in her late twenties who are sure they don't, who identify as people who do not ever want to fucking have kids and telling them, Oh, you don't know your own mind. You don't know what you want or don't want. You might change your mind. So we're just not going to do this for you. And that seems crazy contradictory.
1: And, you know, I think that this to have this patriarchal model where it's like, well, I think that you might have regret later in the future. And so it's like, what's the alternative? So, you know, for transgender people to say that you can't affirm the gender that you know that you are. So the alternative is, you know, we know that trans people already face higher risks of, of suicide for, and, and depression for the treatment that they endure by society and, and risks of um, attack and, and all the things that they already face to say that you have to continue to live Uh, in a body that doesn't feel like your own, I'm going to try to enforce that on you because I think that you might have regret later to say to a woman who comes in, I absolutely know that I don't want to have children. You might have regret. Let me force you to have a pregnancy that you don't want, force you to have a child you don't care about as a patient, as you know, your caller said, be forced to take, you know, morning after pills that make you feel terrible all the time. You know, I just, I, I don't understand to say that, You know, I as a doctor or I as a politician don't want you to have regrets. I'm going to make this decision for you. We have to say, what's the alternative? What are we asking people to do with their lives? And when you think about it that way, it's incredibly cruel.
0: And the caller, I believe, is from Australia. She mentioned that she's in Australia. So this isn't necessarily an issue for her there. But the coming post row or already arrived post row America, there may be more women out there who are certain they don't want kids or don't want more kids who wish to get tubal ligations In the very near future. And the medical establishment has got to come to grips with, you know, if women are going to live in a a country or live in a state where it's impossible for them to get an abortion, more women might opt for tubal ligations and should be able to access those.
1: Absolutely. And I've I've already seen a high volume of patients coming in asking about IUDs, being like I've been reading about this abortion ban stuff. You know, for me, what seemed like a theoretical before, I really, really need access to contraception. And so I know, you know, where I work at Planned Parenthood, we're really working to expand telemedicine for contraception services as well, because we want patients to have access to contraception, um, because, you know, the 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 outcome of an unplanned pregnancy might look very different soon in the station in which they live.
0: Dr. Stacey Delin board-certified position, associate medical director at Planned Parenthood. She shares evidence-based medicine and combats misinformation on her Instagram, at stacy Dillon underscore MD. Stacey, uh, before we let you go, can you just tell people a little bit about your invaluable Instagram account, which in the posted stories has just a wealth of information about COVID that I find myself turning to again and again uh, as I make my way through this pandemic. What inspired you to start it?
1: So I feel like working as an abortion provider, it's been, you know, a big part of my job is combating misinformation all the time. And when uh, when we started to have a pandemic, uh, you know, I, I noticed a lot of misinformation arising around that, and a lot of questions. And so, you know, I do my best to just keep everything um, accessible and easy to understand. In a time in which scientific evidence-based information seems harder and harder to come by with all the screaming that's out there on the internet, so you know, I do what I can in both these spheres, and both um, you know, COVID misinformation and uh, misinformation that's arising about reproductive health.
0: You still mask it up on airplanes. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Yes, and
1: I I encourage everyone else to continue to do
0: so as well. I liked masking up a (laughs) pandemic or no pandemic. I liked it just because it made people 80% less likely to talk to you.
1: Yeah, I actually read an interesting article about how teenagers, um, even while some mask mandates have been dropped in schools, they're like, yeah, I'd rather just like kind of hang out behind here. It feels safer to me. And I really respect that. I think, You know, there's a lot of reasons somebody want, might want to wear a mask.
0: OK, Dr. Dillon, thank you so much for jumping on the phone again. I really appreciate uh, all the time uh, you've shared with me, all the times you've made yourself available and shared your expertise with my listeners. I really, really appreciate it.
2: Thanks so much for having me.